Hello, I'm Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Male Plus. I'm joined this week, as every week, by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Hello. Hello. Tis Boris week. Tis Boris, Boris week. Trump week. Yes, Boris Trump week. You've been having a nice time sitting... Well, I spent four hours watching the committee yesterday. The giant polar bear of a man. Oh my God. I was, yeah. I was thinking I was like a polar bear. He does. He's very bear-like. I know. I was astonished. It was so unbelievable. I couldn't... All I could think of was what an enormous and inordinate waste of time this mm. is. Because um, it, it really was very nitpicky. I mean, he's, you know, we know that he messed up and he's admitted he messed up. Mm. It's just a kind of question of how he messed up. And the questions from the MPs were so... It was basically the same question over and over mm. again. And it was so clear. I mean, Harriet Harbin clearly absolutely loathes him. him. I mean, mm. it was... Honestly, palpable. I think she's probably at the front of a very long queue. I think she is, but she uh, was definitely channeling Dolores Umbridge. I mean, he always is quite schoolboyish, isn't he? There's yes, always very. a sort of element of naughty, naughty schoolboy well, about yes, him. Yes, it looks like you. Yes, you want to admonish him all the time. <laughs> yes. because he looks, and when she said, when she said at the beginning, administer the oaths, you sort of felt like she was saying, actually, administer six of the best. <laughs> anyway, he's yeah. So well, it is. I mean, it is the. The anniversary of the three years ago we went into lockdown yeah, today. Absolutely. Yeah, Can and of course, ma- do you remember that feeling? I, I remember feeling absolutely desolate, actually, because yes. I was really—I didn't think we should go. In, I never thought we should go into lockdown. I had to sort of. Well, completely... you probably knew more than most, actually, yeah. because you were right at the epicenter of all of yeah. that. I mean, I didn't know very much, and I just remember being very frightened, actually, very frightened yes. sitting. Because it was about the, il- about the illness or about... Just in general. Just I, I just felt like we were sort of... Were ent- you furious, I, were you? Yes, furious. I felt we were entering mm. some sort of terrible dystopian authoritarian... Blade runner. Blade runner world <laughs> where yeah. we were, at, we know, we were being uh, tr- tracked, our every movement. I just, mm. I, that sort of thing gives me the willies, I'm mm, afraid. Mm. And it just it gave me the willies. Well, you write. and a certain group of my friends were absolutely were furious. Yeah. I was sort of rather pathetically terrified. Well, you had it quite early on, I seem to remember, didn't I got, you? No, I was an early adopter of you COVID. You were very early, because I didn't have it until, like, right at the end. No, I got it at the very beginning. Yeah. And uh, Yes, I remember you all had it in your house. The whole lot, yes. Yeah. And I do remember being tested for it. Yeah. And the woman said to me, you've got COVID. Go home and die. Go home. Don't touch anything on the way out, is what she said to me. General. Know, you, you managed it quite effectively, I seem to remember. I don't know what I did. Didn't, didn't, you didn't, well, you weren't ill at all. No, no. I wasn't, fortunately. No. My husband, on the other hand. He was quite ill. Yes, he went to bed for a week. Yeah, but he's a man. Yes. So it was much worse for him, obviously. Yes. But also, I think he didn't drink. That was the one thing. Mm. Not alcohol. That's I mean. how you knew he was ill. Yes. <laughs> not not alcohol, no. Water. Is what I mean. Didn't drink any water. And that was when I realised, I thought, my gosh, yes, you yeah. really are unwell. And I was a bit worried that he was going to die of dehydration yeah. in no, the night. I, I, but yes, yeah, so, you know. The, the, whole thing was, the whole thing was horrific. But so it just sort of... seems a bit mad to, to go after Boris. And what do they want? Well, I just think, I think what they want is they want him to grovel and they want him to be, say sorry. They, well, they want him to pun- be punished and they want him to. What they wanted him to do in this committee was to admit that he knew that he was breaking the rules, right? And but and was, that he but, lied to. But, but the it House was of quite Commons. well. He has admitted that he misled the House of Commons, yes. but he says he didn't do it deliberately. Yeah, because he says that he thought that actually he was following the following rules. the following yes. the guidance. Yeah, and you know we're in a really grey area. I know. You know, it's it's all a little bit complicated. I mean, I also. Also felt that the rules themselves were stupid and draconian, mm. and you know, completely over the top, enforced in an over the top mm. way. And, you know, and I, a lot of people 
quite rightly felt very angry about them because mm. you know i remember one friend of mine his his poor mother died of it and he wasn't even allowed to go and see her body which mm. I, you know was awful and and also sort of pointless because why couldn't he have just put on you know protective clothing yes. and, and just gone in and not touched her and yeah. just said goodbye i mean it, so there were sort of pockets of that didn't just for me. Just didn't well, there make was any a lot sense. of sort of chicken, mind, chicken licking. Yeah, stuff. I don't mind following the rules if the yeah. rules make sense. Yes. But quite a lot of the rules didn't seem to make any yeah. sense to yeah. me, and they seem to be anyway. That's you know the whole thing. You know, there's yeah. going to be a COVID inquiry, but the, but the thing about Boris is that I think I think what people, what I do think about Boris, and I remember from the time is that he was the person responsible for everybody. Mm. He was responsible for seventy million people mm. and their well-being, mm. and that in itself is a huge stress. And mm. I think he actually did take it very seriously. Sure. And I remember, you know, listening to the sort of Zoom, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of Zoom cabinet meetings, mm. and he was working constantly, twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. The man was barely going to the lavatory. You know, mm. he was genuinely. Sort of brings in the sort of WhatsApps that we had a couple of weeks ago, the Matt Hancock WhatsApps. Oh, yes, yes. This this notion that the government was somehow maliciously trying to, you know, Manipulate kill your us. granny yes. or whatever. Yeah, or yeah. The, the, yeah. none of that is true. That mm. is a really unpleasant and and actually I think wrong headed approach. They did make mistakes, mm. but the thing, the reason they made mistakes was because they actually a lot of time didn't really know what they were dealing with. Yes, and the data was changing constantly mm. and very quickly, and you'd get these great waves of new data which were terrifying. Mm. I mean, the projections that you know this projection, that projection, this number of deaths, and they were literally making policy on the hoof. Mm. And of course, if you make policy on the hoof, you don't always get it right. So this idea that he should have basically been going around number ten with a ruler enforcing social distancing rules is absurd. I mean, mm. the the man was constantly working mm. and so were all of his officials mm. and so were all of the people there we were all sitting at home doing what we were told but we didn't have that responsibility that pressure and i think mm. people perhaps underestimate you know people had nervous breakdowns because they couldn't handle it i mean the, the people were leaving all the time the reason he had to go to so many leaving parties was because and they're not parties leaving gatherings was <laughs> was because was because people were just he was hemorrhaging people because they couldn't stat, they of couldn't course. cope with the pressure yes. which was absolutely immense and then of course he got it and nearly died mm. and you know, I remember that. I remember that call which came oh, through, which was, that. you know, we don't think he he might not survive. Yeah. And I, I remember and when he went into intensive care. Mm. Yeah. So you know, I think I think everybody like it's, it's you know, it, mistakes were made. Responsibility needs to be taken, but at a certain point, you've got to draw a line under the whole thing and yeah, move and on. Yeah, just move on. I agree. And I think that's what we need mm. to do. Anyway, uh, that was a rather long intro. Sorry. <laughs> Um, well, I, I felt there was a font of knowledge oh, there. Oh, gosh. Yes. Anyway, but we have got some more fun things to talk yes. about. Uh, we've got uh, a new anthology of poets mm. by uh, Ali Aziri. And we're going to do what we always do on the show, which is we're going to take an astrological look at the political events of the day. We are joined now by Ali Aziri. Uh, whose new book, mm. A Nursery Rhyme for Every Night of the Year, <clears throat> comes out today. Hooray! Hooray! Today, hooray. See, that's a nice rhyme. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and um, uh, Ali, it's so lovely to have you here. Ali is a sort of, I don't know, poetry czar, would you call yourself? Queen. Probably not. I'd say queen. Queen of poetry. Queen queen of poetry. poetry. Um, having done the most extraordinary work over the last, what, 10 years? 10 years, yeah, would you say? a bit more. 12, um, I think. No. Basically transforming poetry from the sort of really boring stuff that you have to learn at school. Yes. 
by road into something really vibrant and alive. Tell us how you came to it and why you came to doing poetry and why you wanted to, well, you wanted to sort of breathe new life into it, really, and how it happened. Um, I think lots of us maybe go back to what we liked when we were little. Yeah. And I really liked this book of poems that I would read and reread. I think novels to me seemed a bit too long. And so it was definitely a big sort of private passion of mine to read poems. They really spoke to me. And I think I found in them um, the variety. So some made me laugh and some had sort of answers. There were these Christina Rossetti poems that are all about death and mourning. And I probably hadn't dared ask anyone about that. And and then I did forget about it for quite a while. Like some, you know, kind of really old friends of mine were sort of quite surprised when I sort of picked up this poetry. You know, they sort of didn't know, maybe because it was a sort of secret passion. Well, you started with a poetry app, didn't you? Yes. Right at the very beginning. So, that was the first thing you did. Yeah, when the iPad came along, I was given one one Christmas and I was almost a bit cross. Like, I don't want this expensive gadget and what do I need this for? And then, of course, like everyone, I completely fell for it. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, a poetry could work well on it. It's short and you could fit one on a screen. You could make it really beautiful because I thought things in Apple tended to work if they were very beautiful. Mm. So I said, like the idea of making something very pretty. You could have the poem on screen. You could read it, but you could ask actors. So I used to be an actor and I've got lots of friends who are actors. You could ask actors to read them and then it could be really fun and interactive. You could press a button and someone would read you a poem. You could press another button and you could record yourself reading a poem and send it to your lover or granny or friend. And it worked. Yeah, um, it did. I remember it. And, and you got so Helena Bonham Carter. Who else did you get? You got so originally, um, originally, I did this one called If Poems, which is sadly no longer available. Mm. And then I did one called The Love Book, which you can still get. And Helena Bonham Carter, Bill Nye read on the first one, and then Tom Hiddleston, Harry Enfield. Yeah. So again, I just wanted them to be lively and fun and brilliant. There was something brilliant. about bringing them out of the page and, put, and putting them... And I think it was a genius idea to give them to actors because, mm. I mean, you know, I always think that when poets read their own poems, apart from Maya Angelou, who's probably the only exception, <laughs> I always think it sounds a bit sort of... They get a, 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 wordy and verbose and a bit boring, yeah, they don't always they? Sound yeah. a bit, they always sound a bit... Radio 4 Thought for the Day mm. whereas when actors read them they actually really bring them into a sort of oral you know they bring them space. alive and what's weird is you always think that poetry is, is sort of quite a passive thing mm. you're sitting there reading it to yourself in your head but once you start listening to them they become alive in your brain I mean they're much more exciting to have them read to you and it was an oral tradition yeah. poems were just being spoken in the town square someone came along and it might have been a ballad or someone was reading you a lullaby they were always actually to be spoken in many languages the word for poem and song is the same so they should be spoken and then I think you know what 100 years has gone by when it's been more about something that you read or study and and just being able to help bring them back alive and sort of, you know, help revive the oral tradition. But nursery rhymes are sort of almost the ultimate form of of spoken poetry because most of them, I mean, you don't learn nursery rhymes in school. I mean, they're they're generally told to children by parents, Mm. mostly mothers, but sometimes. And they're they're only quite recently been written down, really, haven't they? Yeah. So for hundreds of years, no one wrote them down. They had no need to. They were easy to memorise. They were passed down generation to generation. They first appear, um, you know, probably not really until about the 16th, 17th century when maybe a little bit of one appears in a play. But really, they're still not being written down until about the 1800s, a book of Tom Thumb's nursery rhymes are written down. But it wasn't, you know, even really that important. Then there were collections of Mother Goose rhymes. And you're right, it was nearly always women, mothers or nursemaids who were passing down these rhymes. 
And they've just changed. They've changed in sort of, you know, every rendition, almost every retelling, because mothers, you know, nursemaids could say whatever they wanted. They have a sort of kind of odd, they have a sort of almost educational purpose for the child. And some of them are quite dark and sinister, aren't they? Definitely. Most of them, I would say, are dark and dark. Yeah, yeah. I think that in it, they're um, definitely contain warnings. Mm. Um, You know, you don't say your prayers. You know, the old man's going to be sort of, you know, flung down the stairs. Maybe warning to a mother about, you know, falling out of a cradle. Mm. And some of the nursemaids who would be helping for children would be very young. Like, they'd only be about 13. Like, famously, Dickens credits his 13-year-old nursemaid for telling him lots of stories. So they weren't really aware of, oh, this might be a dangerous, scary thing to tell a child. It's just like, I'm going to tell you this rhyme or story that contains this warning so that you are safe, you know, and they're not really thinking through, this might give you nightmares. Also, they're probably sort of half asleep. I mean, a lot of these are all about just the rhythm, aren't they? The rhythm of the words. They have that sort of slightly, I think they have that sort of slightly surreal quality that dreams have a lot of them we've got one that we can listen to we've got one that we can listen to which is particularly I think quite a dark one mm. uh, which is read by Helena Bonham Carter at Oranges and Lemons Oranges and Lemons say the bells of St Clements You owe me five farthings say the bells of St Martins When will you pay me say the bells of Old Bailey When I grow rich say the bells of Shoreditch When will that be say the bells of Stepney I'm sure I don't know, says the great bell of bow. Here comes a candle to light you to bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. Chip, chop, chip, chop. The last man is dead. I find that quite terrifying. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry to say, Helena does read it a bit like yeah. Bellatrix Lestrand in yeah. Harry Potter. Night, night, darling. Night, night, darling. And chop off your head. Yes. I mean, where did the chopping off of the bit? I, I don't what is that a bit? It's so it's strange. a game. Lots of nursery rhymes are also uh, action rhyme. Yes. You know, they're a skipping game. So really, you know, and I and I talk about it in the introduction mm. to the book, mm. um, which is, you know, I mean, I talk first of all about what it sort of all means and the hidden meaning, but also it's a game. So the children are standing and they parade down and the arms are up in the air. Of course, I've and forgotten you, you that, remember? yes. You know, and then the arms sort of come yes. down and Gosh. chop the girl sort of out oh of the circle and then you all go around. So That's lots of them total again. flashback, I've just remembered yeah, that. That's so amazing. really fun. So I have yes. sort of reintroduced, oh, what you do with, um, you know, yes. Skip to my loo or Hokey Cokey. And um, there's lots of really fun playground And the, be- the book is absolutely beautifully illustrated. Yes. Uh, by Emily Faccini. Is that how I say her name? Yeah. Emily yeah. Faccini. I mean, yeah, they really they are, are gorgeous. gorgeous. They, they, they remind me a little bit of Arthur Rackham's uh, illustrations for, uh, which I always used to love. Mm. And, uh, but they, they're very, they're sort of black and white. They're beautiful. And, and they really, they, I think, you know, I think, what what I think is difficult for parents these days is to is to get away from as you said you were talking about earlier the iPad which has almost become like the nursemaid hasn't it Yeah the babysitter I mean I think um, I think it would be great I think it's a good resource that it's full of nursery rhymes that you know it's full of nursery rhymes that you've forgotten you know Yes and then it's got new ones I've got new ones in there by Michael Rosen Julia Donaldson who was you know just like massively you know best loved authors writing today. And I think there are just things that you can, you know, draw on. Because I do sort of feel for, you know, parents or a child, you know, minders, like, how am I going to entertain or soothe this child? And I do think nursery rhymes to deliver both things. Yes. Both, you know, things to divert or soothe. When my children were little, they would do that thing where they would want me to read them the same nursery rhyme over and over and over. They would become fixated with one particular nursery rhyme for whatever reason. Mm. I mean, I think they are incredible. They do do sort of stimulate the imagination in, in a way that is very unmodern 
Isn't it? Well, it's all about it's all about teaching um, sort of links, synapse links, isn't it? Because all the then the rhythm of the sentences and the and the beats of the words, and also a joy and a pleasure with the, with the sort of madness of the rhymes. But also, we live in a world where no one ever says anything horrid to children anymore because they're you know <laughs> apart because, from us. Apart from you, obviously, we are actually we're available if you want to come around to our house and be horrid <laughs> to your children. Um, it's a very small fee. In fact, we'll do it for free. But you know, we tend to over uh, coddle our kids and, mm. and try and. Protect them from the world but the this again this is a the nursery rhymes bring the real world into a child's life in a way that is sort of kind of manageable and yes. it makes it fun don't they that's really i mean i think in a way though that when we hear these rhymes as children we don't really understand them and then not, the sort no. of you know delight is sort of later in life you look back and sort of go oh i see mm. that meaning you know that was there exactly but are there any ones that you looked at and you thought oh they're because some of them are very 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 dark i mean that's sort of the straw peter collection which used to be one of my favorites as a and of course child. there are some that yeah. are very controversial so yeah you know catch a tiger by the yes. you know, and 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 you know earlier a couple, earlier this month, we were talking about. In fact, last month, they were talking. They were talking about rewriting Roald, Roald Dahl, and there was a big controversy about that. I mean, how have you sort of addressed the sort of slightly more unsavoury elements in the in the canon? Um, well, yeah, canon. it's it's really interesting because there are not that many which are offensive. Mm. Interestingly, I think it's a really old tradition. Many of them are sort of dealing with sort of rural matters and um, you know bluebells and cockle shells, and there are a few that that are problematic and actually it was really interesting dealing with them. So on the eeny, meeny, miny, mo, this rhyme has been around for centuries mm. and was originally and still exists in certain pockets of England, actually, interestingly. It was just of eeny, meeny, macaraca and then sort of a whole load of oh, okay. nonsense. And it was a counting out rhyme mm. and it might have been for shepherds counting their sheep or fishermen counting their fish oh, right. or children uh, counting out rhyme like who's going to be it yes. you know at the end of the rhyme you're it yeah. yes the uh, offensive version with the n-word um, came into being in the sort of late 19th century in America when racism was obviously sort of rife and it came over to England and Kipling put that version into a book a sort of collection of rhymes and he was obviously enormously famous and so it did we, you know, we could blame him in a way yeah. um, and then it sort of stuck but actually that version was probably only there for a certain amount of decades so, yeah, and then in fact you know it's moved on to you know yeah. catch a tiger yes, by its tiger, so yeah. it's interesting that it's not a, a, it's not the same thing as what's happened with Roald Dahl where people have thought I need to go in and do a warning or I need to go in and do a rewrite they've evolved anyway right and there's another one in the there's a long rhyme about Mother Goose mm. Mother Goose as in the person who collected the rhymes and who were yearly pantomimes are based on and in it there was um, this line where um, Jack sells the golden egg at one point. And, you know, very unpleasantly for some um, period of time, it was Jack sold his egg to a rogue of a Jew. Mm. I mean, how offensive. Who cheated him out of half of his Jew. You know, just mm. some, just terrible, stereotypical, cliched mm. racism. And now it's gone back to he sold his egg to a rogue and a cad who stole half the proceeds away from the lad. Right. So I didn't have any problem putting in the version without mm. the offensive language. Yes. You know, and actually... But, but, it that, was but that, has that evolved naturally, has it? Nobody's actually rewritten no, it's that. Just it's just evolved. changed. Yeah, it's just changed. As attitudes change. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, and also, how long was that unpleasant verse in? Mm. You know, my, again, it might have only been around for a bit. So it's interesting. So the development of them is actually sort of quite a hit, nice historical record in terms of yeah. people's attitudes and the general culture. I think we have another reading by Helen LeBron Carter. It's a handsome young fellow, which is a limerick by... Michael Palin. A handsome young fellow called Frears was attracted to girls by their ears. 
He traversed the globe for a really nice lobe, and the sight would reduce him to tears. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> that's just brilliant, isn't it? There's just so much nonsense in that poem. Yeah. yeah but I'm you've got some more limericks in here, haven't you, which um, uh, which are uh, um, later in the book, Where's the, which is about roses red, violets are blue, poetry is hard, avocado. That oh, one. Yeah, that's very <laughs> sweet. Which I really yeah. liked. <laughs> yeah. There are... Um, Avocado. Yeah. Avocado. It's brilliant because uh, because we, we went to your fabulous thing for Ukraine last Friday and that was one of the uh, at the National Theatre and that was one of the poems they So I there. think we should just explain for listeners that Ali has an annual event at the National Theatre in which she organises poems which are then read by really handsome people like Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston yes. And <laughs> what's the other one? Damien Lewis. My other boyfriend. Yes, Damien Lewis. <laughs> And um, yes, it's very, it's very exciting. Yes, it's very, it was, it was very good. And this year, you did it to raise money for Ukraine, which yeah. was incredibly uh, moving. Actually, everybody um, can see it in fact for free yes. on the National Theatre YouTube channel. Yes. Yes. Yeah, from oh, April the sixth. Yes. Oh, brilliant. Okay, it mm. was wonderful. But one of the standout moments for me was that ridiculous poem because it made me laugh a lot. You said also in the book you've asked other people to write versions of that or yes yeah so um i talk about the original roses are red violets are blue um rhyme Mm. and we know that it dates back to the 1500s when it was in edmund spencer's the fairy queen that's the first reference we can find to it and there's so many variants since and then the the one about avocado which might be my favorite yeah uh, that imogen just said and then i've asked smritty halls to write um a new version in the book and she's a southeast asian british writer and she writes one about um can you read chilies being sweet it's, it's so adorable chilies are red by smritty halls chilies are red peacocks are blue jasmine is sweet and so are you but chilies can burn some jasmine's too sweet and peacocks can peck be fast on your feet <laughs> very good they're beautiful that's, it's, it's, that's just uh, the, the gift that keeps on giving isn't it that roses are red the yeah. idea of uh, it is, yeah. of playing around with it yeah. really and I good think it is just play with words so, and it just encourage all of us and it's in a way it is our sort of gateway into yeah. um, sharing stories with our children it's, isn't it what, how would you what's the difference between a rhyme and a poem um, you know, what's so sort of interesting, you can't really define what a nursery rhyme is, but I think that it is just something that has got, you know, rhythm and lots of rhyme yeah. and very simple. They don't tend to be, you know, too full of metaphor. Yeah, mm. yeah. But they are just, um, you know, I think of a poem, if people are scared of poems, just think of it a nursery rhyme that's grown up. So what's the oldest one you've got in your book? Well, maybe actually that reference to the, the Edmund Spencer on Roses Are Red. Mm. Um, so, because not many things were written down, and the Fairy Queen is one of the oldest things written down by Edmund Spencer. So it was around 1553, and the the thing that I found was this line in this very very long poem, which is she bathed with roses red and violets blue, and all the sweetest flowers that in the forest grew. Which you would do if you were a fairy, wouldn't you? Gosh, how beautiful <laughs> is that? That's, that's um, lovely. Are, are all our sort of neuroses the same? Do you know what I mean? The idea of uh, the struggle between good and evil, the bad witch, the good queen, all those things that, that are in those nursery rhymes, have they, have, they, have they remained the same all the way through? Is there a sort of basic premise for, for any of these nursery rhymes? Which is, you... well, I mean, because they're not too goody-goody two-shoes, are they? You know, they no. are sort of full of warning and dark and, you know, things sort of chopping off your head. I've got a whole month in November. I sort of theme it by month. So in February, there's lots of um, rhymes all about love and it's all as different forms. 
there's Daisy Daisy in there, but also poems about love for a sibling or lack of love for a sibling. Some funny ones. Mostly. And then in November, I've got a whole run of rhymes sort of all about history. So you've got London's Burning London's. Those are really, really fun. Ring a Ring of Roses. Um, that was nothing to do with the plague. No. And oh, so I was always told oh, it was a plague shush, Don't tell me that. So te- I thought so it was to do with yeah, the plague. Yeah, tissue, tissue, we all fall but down. But dead. I- we widely think that it's about the Great Plague of London yes. in 1665, and it's completely part of the English popular imagination. That idea only gained traction in the 20th century. For centuries before, it was an action rhyme, both here and an equivalent in France, and we all fall down as just an instruction to curtsy. Oh. Oh. There was so no the, so evidence. the ring of roses that is supposed to be of the red dots on yeah, your... and a tissue because you sneeze. Yeah. You sneeze. Nothing. No, nothing. And I think someone decided in the 20th century, this rhyme was about the plague. Yes. <laughs> and then we all sort of went with it. And why not? You know, there's no yes. rules. I mean... We, but well, it was very uh, interesting also, finding out, no, it's just actually discredited theory. <laughs> Gosh, that was the only time I ever looked clever was when I would say that. Yeah, I think you still can. <laughs> I think you them, still do, can. And you talk about France. Presumably, they, if they go back quite a long way, so quite a lot of them would have been in, originally in French because wasn't France, French the language of the court for quite a long time? In- I think they were more rhymes from the sort of rural classes. Um, I do put in Frère Jacques, which is maybe the only French any of us come out of school remembering. So that's in there. But it turned out that even though I am quite a fan of poems in translation, because you want to introduce people to the sort of great poets mm. of, um, of other countries. In nursery rhymes, they tend not really to work. They don't really work. They're no. so simple. Yes. They're four lines long. It's all about the rhyme. And you translate them, you've sort of lost pretty much yes. all of it. Yeah. Do you have a favourite? Um, do I have a favourite? I love some of the songs. I was really thrilled to be able to include, you know, Do Re Me from The Sound of Music. <laughs> <laughs> So I sort of thought I want rhymes for the yeah. nursery, but also songs for the nursery. Yeah, yeah. So I was like very, very excited when permission came through from Disney to include that. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, well, it's brilliant. And it's and it's also Beautiful. quite yellow and a rather lovely spring book. And it's called Nursery Rhymes for Every Night of the Year by Ali Aziri. Thank you so much, Ali. That was brilliant. Thank you for having me. On both sides of the Atlantic this week, former premieres. Mm. Boris Johnson or Joris Bonson as my children call him <laughs> Doris Bonson Joris Bonson <laughs> uh, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump have both found themselves under scrutiny mm. so as we always do with important political events mm. we thought we would get <laughs> the astrologer's view good very good idea <laughs> I do fear that it's been a bit of a week it has it's been a bit of a week in the yes, stars yes I do um, for so, everyone yes for everyone yeah so um so Teresa Chung, our resident astrologer, joins us now. Teresa, tell us, is there anything happening that would indicate a particularly important time in politics? Well, it's a cosmic commotion up there oh, right now. Good. Oh. Many astrologers have looked at March 2023 as massive because there's so much going on. But to talk about Boris and Trump, I love astrology. They're both Gemini, a few days apart, and they're both going through very similar dramas in their different ways. This week is seismic for them. And, you know, it's all about their relationship with the truth and how they present themselves to their followers. So, goodness, astrology is amazing, isn't it? You couldn't have two Geminis going through the same thing on the world stage. Yeah, no, it's crunch time. It's definitely crunch time for both of them, I think. Oh, it is crunch time. Everything is going to be revealed because Pluto is going into Aquarius and Pluto is the planet of revelation and destruction 
and revealing truth. And it was about a couple of hundred years ago that we had like the likes of the French Revolution, etc. You know, so we're kind of having a similar cosmic same sort of astrology similar astrology when pluto's in aquarius what happens is you move from structure self-serving from patriarchy to a more democratic you know the people's voices and this is what we're seeing playing out but in conjunction with that we've got pisces saturn in pisces now saturn is the teacher and pisces is all about boundaries and the difference between reality and fantasy Right. So this is all playing out and nothing's going to be the same again from March 2023 onwards for both Trump and Boris, but for all for each one of us as well. We're all going through our own Pluto and, and Saturn in Pisces at the moment, which is about letting go of what no longer serves us and being authentic. It's a really, really time to upgrade. It's a cosmic upgrade for us all and we need to be called to that we need to rise to the challenge all of us but also it's is it about facing up to certain realities and accepting them and moving on Well, actually you know with pisces being so strong at the moment because of saturn the teacher pisces is all about fantasy and i think we are going into a time now when the distinction between reality and fantasy is so blurred and we need to be very careful that especially online as pisces is all about technology as well as is aquarius so we need to be very careful about what we say online and how we present ourselves as never before to go back to trump and boris they will carry on doing what they do i do think it's a bit of a, a fizzle out for both of them but in no way are they completely out if you look at their parts they're going to carry on they're going to be sparks coming up from the the flames the ashes but it will never be as before something has shifted in their charts and if they really want to focus on their own personal development trump needs to look at the lessons of cancer which is what his satin return will be in in a few years time and that's about the relationship with women and emotional sustenance and boundaries and boris needs to look at satin in pisces so he's having a double whammy at the moment boris because satin is in pisces anyway but he's also having his satin return in pisces and that's all about boundary settings and the relationship between truth and fantasy could you get a more perfect textbook astrological response to what's happening right now as i say astrology doesn't predict just kind of like provides a voiceover and a commentary yeah and if if they both hired professional astrologers, which they're not going <laughs> to, they would have been prepared, better prepared for this. Yeah. Because 2022 was a terrible year astrologically for Boris. It was all written, it was, it was going to always be awful. So there's no comeback for either of them then? There's no, so well, they're not going to rise like phoenixes? Sparks have come back, but not global, no. 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 And what can, what, what can ordinary, what can ordinary people, what can, can, what can we all take away from this? I mean, in our own lives. Time to upgrade. Look at yourself with great honesty. Your relationship with truth, because, you know, everybody has their comments on Boris and Trump, but we all in our own way <laughs> have a complicated relationship with the truth. We're all the heroes in our own story. We always, always think we're right. We do. It takes a lot of courage to say, well, actually, I got that wrong. And how many of us can do that? I think the more of us start doing that, well, yeah, I, I messed up a bit. I'm not perfect. That's the future of humanity is in that. And also manifesting. You hear a lot about manifesting at the moment. You know, when Pluto goes into Aquarius, it's all about believing in a better future. So collectively we can do that. 
believe in a new world order, it will happen. We can shift it by our belief because what you believe in is what you attract often. Going back to the Trump and the and the Boris thing, mm-hmm. there's an element of them sort of both going over the same ground again and again mm-hmm. and wanting to go back to something that actually doesn't really exist anymore. And I think, you know, for both of them, I think Boris in particular, you know, he should just move on. Mm. You know, he should just say, that's what happened. It didn't quite go the way I planned. So do you think he should leave politics then and no, go and do something else? No, I don't think he needs to leave politics. Right. But I think he just needs to accept that he had his moment mm. and it was a particularly complicated and difficult moment because it had COVID and it had all sorts of mm. other factors. Mm. And, you know, just draw a line under it and move on because there's plenty he can do in politics. Right, so he's the Miss Havisham of politics mm. otherwise. Isn't well, exactly. Is- and Trump is the same. You know, Trump saying, oh, they're going to arrest me. Will all my supporters please come and protect? No. He wants just- to be arrested. He wants it. I'm sure he does, he yes. He wants his moment of triumph with, with, his, with the handcuffs. Mm. He's the greatest reality TV show of all time. He wants that, really, because right now that's what he needs to keep him going. Because he feeds on it. And you're right, they're, both of them are a bit like Miss Havisham. They've had their amazing opportunity, and both of them have strengths and weaknesses. But it, we, the world has moved on, and Pluto is about destruction. We cannot go back. Pluto is the big destroyer. And Aquarius, where we will advance, is in collective thinking, collective mindset, people power, technology. That's what Aquarius is all about. We will learn and grow personally through the Saturn in Pisces, which is currently happening now. And Pisces is all about the difference between fantasy and reality and having a balance. You shouldn't just all be practical and and material because then life is not worth really living. But isn't, isn't, is isn't the fantasy of our current of our world currently the online world? Mm. I mean, I, I wrote PCS last week about this bold glamour filter on TikTok that makes mm. you look like a sort of Latvian porn star. <laughs> and um, yes, thank you. It's, nothing wrong with those. No, obviously. nothing wrong with Latvian porn stars. I don't. But I don't. I don't normally look. You don't like look one. like one. No. Um, I normally look like a middle-aged woman. But um, and and there's this. For the first time, everybody. <laughs> and, and this is and this is the sort of the sort of fantasy of the of the online world, True. which is a lot of it is is not real, and it's and it's and it's you know it's an illusion. So. Oh, yeah. You know, this. Oh, I mean, I, I trade in. I mean, I write about. You could say because I write about dreams, astrology, spiritualism, mysticism. It's all about illusion, and I'm very conscious because I do a lot of um, like celebrity dream decoding, etc. Now and podcasts that I'm very conscious of how, you know, the backdrop, how I look and, and everything. And when I post, you know, you can't, it, the reality is, is difficult and yes. to, to present sometimes, um, you know, because everybody wants beauty and uh, perfection. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think so. So I think the whole world is coming to terms with the sort of the basic, the, mm. the abyss that exists between this sort of perfect online world that people want to present of filters and, you know, uh, special poses where, you know, your your chin is down or up and mm. you're looking up, and th- you know, all of that, you know, the, the, those those kind of expressions and... That weird uh, t- TikTok and, leg flick that yes, everyone does. Yes, which everyone does. But it's not, like, these are not normal <laughs> things that people no. do in normal life. No. And it's, 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 it's very interesting that you talk about fantasy and reality because I do think that that is a big theme in our... 
in our culture mm. at the moment is yes. this, is this, yes. is this separation between the two. Yes. You know, when, when I wrote this piece about Bold Glamour, we had a brilliant sidebar by Samantha Brick, actually, who also writes for the Mail, mm. where she interviewed a couple of teenage girls and they said that they would never like literally never post a photograph of themselves online that hadn't been filtered. Well, that's for 80%, isn't it? 80% yeah, of, of, of young yeah. people use a filter on them. So Who are we trying to impress? I mean, this is the thing as well. Who? Why is it so important what other people think? That's something also in Pisces says, because as long as we're trying to get our validation from, you know, the likes and the approval of others, that's the recipe for unhappiness because you give your power away. It's, you've got to just get the validation. The only person you should impress is yourself, really, at the end of the day. Mm. Even your, not your loved ones, it's all about impressing yourself. And your yourself. mum, that- obviously. And your mum. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Teresa. I think we're going to have to leave it there. But yes, uh, fascinating. Yes. Um, that was Teresa Chung, whose latest book, Empower Your Inner Psychic, is available now. We will put a link in the show notes. If you enjoy listening to the Half Hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus, me at Westminster Wag or Imogen at Imogen EJ. You have been listening to the Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine and Imogen Edwards-Jones. And now, as promised, Helen Bonham Carter reading The Owl and the Pussycat. The Owl and the Pussycat by Edward Lear. The Owl and the Pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money, wrapped up in a five-pound note. The owl looked up to the stars above and sang to a small guitar, Oh, lovely pussy, oh, pussy, my love, what a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are, what a beautiful pussy you are. Pussy said to the owl, You elegant fowl, how charmingly sweet you sing. Oh, let us be married, too long we have tarried, but what shall we do for a ring? They sailed away for a year and a day to the land where the bong tree grows, and there, in a wood, a piggywig stood with a ring at the end of his nose, his nose, his nose, with a ring at the end of his nose. Dear pig, are you willing to sell for one shilling your ring? said the piggy. I will. So they took it away and were married next day by the turkey who lives on the hill. They dined on mince and slices of quince, which they ate with a runcible spoon, and hand in hand, on the edge of the sand, they danced by the light of the moon, the moon, the moon, they danced by the light of the moon.